Hello, and welcome to Ain't That Just The Way podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Brent Clark, as we're going to be delving into the creative side of things and the creative side of the podcast itself. Um, we're going to be using D&D as one of the biggest references because, uh, well, that's just a game that I really fucking love. It's going to be my favorite uh, and has has been my favorite game uh, for quite some time. Um, I'm going to start with a couple common questions that people have asked me. Um, a few friends of mine have asked me a few questions about this game uh, since I have been a passionate lover um, to D&D itself. Um, one of the questions is just like, how long have I played? And I, I, I've probably played for about a decade or so. Um, I, I've had a lot of experience. My dad used to play it himself and I ran into his books um, one day um, back in second edition uh, D&D. That was back AD&D was uh, advanced D&D was the second edition. I remember just reading through those books just out of interest because I was always so attracted to the like the, fan, the fantastical um, dragons, magic, all that, and wizards with great beards and all that stuff. It was all a very attractive and interesting thing to me. So I, I remember reading those books and being just so captivated by what Dungeons and Dragons was that it immediately got me started into like trying to play a game. Now, of course, I was really, really young when I when I started. So like, I mean, it wasn't that much of an actual like collected game. But still, I was very exposed to how to start running one and started learning at a very young age. Um, so yeah, I, I, I played for a long time. Um, my, my preference when it comes to like uh, the game engines is always being uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Currently, I moved from uh, 2nd edition D&D uh, &D rules uh, to 5th edition D&D &D rules. And, um, well, it's been a great change. I've played Pathfinder a few times as well, but it just hasn't really necessarily stuck with me. But uh, most of the tips that I'm going to be giving you guys are going to be just as usable for both Dungeon Masters for D&D &D and Game Masters for Pathfinder, or however you actually use the terminology. It's 2019, use your own pronouns. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, that would be probably my, my preference. 5th uh, edition D&D, &D, I, I got my own opinions about when it comes to advanced D&D. &D. Um, when we get into like uh, further episodes, I'll be sure to kind of like uh, indulge what exactly I uh, like, what I like about the difference, and what are house rules and all that stuff. But uh, for now, um, we can kind of get into what my style is for the most part. So I, I like to play a very fun game, fun game of D and D. Uh, typically, when I um, run Dungeons and Dragons, I, I I immediately assume the people around me are now going to be good friends if I've just met them. Um, or there are already friends that I, I've known for quite some time. So I, I try to keep my style very fun, very jovial, joking at some points, but I also mix some like, like, uh, in contrast, I, I like to use a lot of very dark imagery in contrast of some of the jokes. So if, if I want a session to be very creepy and like horrifying for the players, I, I, I definitely, uh, make a contrast available. Um, between the, between a few sessions, but for the most part, it's very uh, it can be sometimes wacky and whack-a-mole style of gaming at the same time, where like you're cutting off heads, you're doing out whatever you want, you're feeling like a badass, you're going around. Um, whereas there are other times where you feel like you are the one being hunted uh, a few times. So I, I like to kind of mix it up as we go. Um, if this uh, if this podcast seems to be doing well, I might uh, launch this off into more of a series where like you can even. Uh, I'll be recording some episodes of uh, some actual sessions that I do, but that's future talk for now. Um, I hope that just uh, gets you a little bit more familiar with myself and kind of uh, what exactly uh, what exactly I do. 
Awesome. So with that to the side, uh, we can kind of get into what exactly you need to kind of uh, be for your first time DM. So the first thing that we can kind of cover is basically the physical items and the importance of each uh, each thing and kind of like what I believe are probably the most important items to have at the table. So obviously you need some pen and paper or it's a pen and paper game, tabletop role playing game. So you need to have uh, a piece of paper and a pencil. Now I'm a traditionalist. I like classic loose leaf uh, paper because then you can adjust it and customize your character sheet however you want. You can add drawings to it and it's all yours. Um, but then some people like to print theirs off at the same time as well and that's totally fine too. Fit whatever is going to be uh, the best for you. Um, if you're new to D&D, new to Pathfinder, new to all that type of stuff and you're not too sure what exactly is like essential to have on paper, I would advise that you probably um, uh, probably print off some pages so that it's easier to understand, easier to digest, and then you kind of know exactly what you need for everything. Um, but yeah, besides pen and paper, um, you also need the player's handbook that has all the basic rules in it, so it's pretty fucking obvious that you need that. Um, Monster Manual is probably one of the essential things. It, 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 it's an optional, it's an optional requirement. You technically just need the player's handbook to run the game, but the monster manual is going to be a huge resource to help you in your prep for the sessions. Um, it's going to have lots of monsters, their culture, like all these extra details um, of the creatures that you'll need to be using in order to kind of challenge your players in a variety of different ways and adding to the world that you'll be building. So um, the monster manual will just, it, it takes a big load off of your shoulders and makes it a lot easier to prep for sessions. Um, so Monster Manual, in my opinion, is very, very key. Um, the next thing I would have would be dice. You obviously need a, a pair of dice, a d20, a d6, a d10, a d12, a d8, a d4. Um, if there's anything I'm missing, I'm sure one of you guys will remind me. But uh, yeah, no, for the, for the most part, uh, you definitely need a pair of dice. And if you are able to do so, um, I would advise maybe having extra pairs on the ready as well, just in case if a player shows up and they don't and they forgot their set of dice. Um, so yeah, the dice are very important. The pen and paper is very important. The player's handbook, the monster manual. Um, um, the last thing that I would put onto my list would be a Dungeon Master screen. Now, the Dungeon Master screen is probably, it, it is a very resourceful uh, tool to kind of have at your table and to have at your session. Uh, the reason being for that is that, uh, for example, um, again, kind of like going towards my style again. My style, I like to have players have fun, but they need to be, re they need to be reminded of the danger that they're currently in with the possibility of death, but I try not to kill my players. I try not to, because uh, in, in my opinion, I, I like to think of that uh, the, char the character being made by the player, that is a character, uh, like a potential story that that player has made and wants to kind of carry through and see on. So I don't want to cut that short at all. I don't want, at the cost of my campaign, at the cost of my story, I don't want to cut off or block a diff somebody else's story that they want to kind of have fun with. Um, because, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a big boner to lose a character, maybe lose potential of a good story. And uh, yeah, that's just not something that I prefer to do. So a DM screen can help you in that. And just the simple rolling a dice that is a critical on a character that could literally die and uh, you just may be fudging the roll or something like that. But at the same time, it's also good too if you um, 
to remind characters of the danger. If you have a boss fight and it is going extremely poorly and you are uh, uh, for the bad guys, of course, and it's going really well for the heroes and you want and you want there to be a sense of danger, maybe this is the first time that they've encountered this villain and it needs to be a good encounter so that at least then the players will take the villain seriously. Um, then maybe you can maybe uh, bump up some roles as well to make sure that, oh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Yes, the 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 uh, the villain though he rolled a two to make an attack. Maybe that uh, that maybe that lands a critical like a, a like a not a critical but a, a crucial blow to one of the players. Like if, if it was a very important spell to like add that sense of danger, that sense of panic that the player should have. So the DM screen can be useful in a lot of uh, things like that. I've run games without a dungeon master screen, and it has changed the game um, quite a bit. I've killed players because uh, I don't have a dungeon master screen. Um, and they, uh, and the players would know that I would be willingly fudging rolls. And then if the players know that you're purposely fudging rolls, then, uh, then it kind of loses the, the sense of the game. The odds of the game are actually always in my favor. There seems to be no challenge if players know that you're fudging rolls. But at the same time, you don't want to just go full guns blazing and do a total party kill when there probably shouldn't have been. Then you just cut the whole campaign short. Um... You'll notice, uh, so yeah, that is my list right there. So you'll notice as well that I didn't add the Dungeon Master's Guide to this list. And the reason being is that uh, I, for example, I have never read the Dungeon Master's Guide. I've been playing the game for 10 years. Back in 2nd edition, I read the Dungeon Master's Guide, but in 5th edition, I never even opened it. I bought it, I have it, I own one, but I've never read it. I've read maybe bits and pieces that seem interesting if I want to spice up the game, but for the bare bone basics, you do not need the Dungeon Master's Guide in order to run a campaign. No. it. The only thing that uh, you need is just the player's handbook, pen and paper, monster manual, dice, and a Dungeon Master screen. That's all you need. Um, because the, the Dungeon Master Guide is nice to pick up maybe if you want, if you're, if you're got, if you've gotten used to the basics and you're now, uh, accustomed to the game and how it works, then you can maybe bring the Dungeon Master's Guide into the, your game and try to add some of those elements in the DMG to kind of, uh, spice up your game, uh, for the most part. So, yeah, that would be my list of the physical items that you'll need for your session. So, you got all the physical items now. Um, you got your pen, you got your paper, you got your player's handbook, monster manual, dice, and dungeon master screen. What do you do now? Well, the first thing that you want to get started on is probably knowing the basic rules. So that's where the, uh, the player's handbook will come in a lot of handy, um, because that's got all the rules you'll need to know. Um, when session zero arrives and players are making characters and all that such, as the DM or GM, you're going to be the person that uh, the players are going to look to and ask questions. So they're going to be asking you questions about like, oh, what does this do? What, is, what does this mean? What do these, where do these numbers come from and all that such? And you'll have to be the one that kind of knows or is at least familiar enough with those uh, rules to kind of answer those questions and to give them as much understanding as possible. Um, an easy way is to like uh, just try to get examples, use examples as much as possible. So, for example, um, I, when players ask me about uh, skill checks, I always try to uh, give different examples and uh, differentiate between the differences of like survival, perception, and investigation checks. 
perception versus investigation is kind of hard to explain sometimes. So you want to make sure that you use examples to kind of like iterate um, what exactly those two checks are and where would be good scenarios of which you would use them. So investigation is looking for, uh, yeah, looking for any like secret doors or anything like that in the uh, in a room. Whereas a perception check is maybe perhaps uh, scouting ahead for danger or um, kind of like an eagle eye vision, for example. It's like, oh, do I notice that this man is like, you know, hiding something on him or something like that. It could be used in a variety of ways, but you want to make sure that you kind of have examples at the ready or at least an understanding enough that you could provide examples of skill checks. Um, so again, uh, knowing the basic rules, um, knowing what feats do, where the numbers come from, all that stuff like strength, dexterity, what they apply to, all that such uh, is going to be probably your, one of the most important things to do. Um, the next thing you want to get started on uh, before, like by session zero at the latest is probably open up a form of open communication. So um, that includes like group chats and all that stuff to get everybody involved and on the same page. Um, so this just kind of allows you to kind of like um, keep up with everybody, keep tabs on them and just like, hey, if you got session updates or got pictures or drawings or something like that to share uh, about your campaign, you can post them on there so that the players can see it, um, which is fantastic. And the next, it kind of like keeps all the players up to date on the social contract that you guys are signing. So what I mean by that about the social contract um, is that it's a, a non-existent form but basically, um, it's you as the DM are kind of making a commitment to the players to make sure that you're putting effort into the time that they're spending into you, into your story and all that such. So, like, I mean, it, it's, it's very important to, like, be acknowledging the social contract and asking players exactly what they want from the experience and making sure that you can kind of keep up to date with all that stuff. Um, because the worst, the, the, the last thing you want to happen is to have a bunch of players show up for four or five hours per session and always be bored at, to their mind because you have like, uh, or like the last thing you want as a player is to show up to a DM that is never like doesn't prepare. Um, and it's honestly, uh, like four hours of excruciating, painful waiting, um, for them to kind of just like read up on the rules or um, check back in their notes on the prep or just if they didn't do anything at all. I've had a session once where a DM like was running uh, a session out of a module and never read ahead. That is when you go to prep and you're running out of a module, read ahead. Yeah, it was it was a very frustrating experience because every time we went into a different room, um, the DM would have to pause the game for 10 minutes and read uh, read ahead so that he got all the details and uh, all the monsters and stuff like that and all the lore. Oh, by God, there was a lot of lore on that. But uh, yeah, no, he'd always make us sit for 10 minutes and take a break every new room we went into into a dungeon. And that was a very frustrating experience. I went to two sessions and then I had had enough of it because it wasn't improving. So, um, yeah, that's one of the social, like, that's kind of like the idea of the social contract, whether it is you're getting together with friends or if you're going to your local comic book shop and uh, meeting up with a bunch of strangers, like the social contract is making sure that it keeps tabs with you and making sure that you are still passionate and still on top of the game. And I mean, if, if all of a sudden you're burnt out with the game, you just got to like, that's what the open form of communication is. That's what the group chat is for. It's just to let players know. It's like, Hey guys, I'm burnt out. 
Um, I'm not really feeling that passionate about the campaign anymore. I apologize. But uh, I, I also want to like make sure that the value of your time that you're spending into the session um, is also like valued and it's still uh, it's still going to be used in a rightful way. So what what can we do to fix this? And most people are reasonable and they'll be like, yeah, no, we totally understand. Let's try doing a one shot or something where somebody else runs as a DM to give you time to kind of just like take a deep breath and just figure out what exactly is going to be the next steps when it comes to the campaign. But yeah, the open form of communication, the group chats, the social contract, uh, those are two, they, they kind of go hand in hand where it's, uh, you, you should be committing to the session and committing to the time that you're uh, spending with your friends at the same time. You don't want to waste their time where they could be doing something else. That's the last thing that you want a player's head to be. That's the, is, is totally somewhere else. The next thing that I start to get into is kind of a practice of the change of uh, perspective that you'll need as a DM. So as a player, you have a, a single perspective, which is just one person. You are the decider of what this character does, how they feel, and uh, you're only focused on this one person for the majority of, sorry, the, for the most part, the entirety of the campaign. But as a DM, you need to be very focused on the entire world. Now, that, that's a lot to take in all at once, and uh, it can certainly be overwhelming, but this is kind of uh, like my tips to how to break that down for the most part. You want to start in small segments because, of course, just being told, hey, Think of everything. Uh, that Again, that can be very overwhelming, but um, you, you got to start in small segments. So when it comes to session zero, you'll get, uh, you'll get a chance for a feel of like what the characters will want, what they'll need, and like uh, who they are as players and as characters at the same time. So you'll be able to kind of craft your uh, mentality towards uh, something that might be able to build that. But uh, for the perspective, it's a lot of asking yourself a bunch of questions, a bunch of questions that you uh, that most people will not like necessarily have thought of. Now, of course, it's not like you just have them in a bag and they're just going to pop up. You just need to kind of work your way through it. So um, I'm going to reference my campaign that I uh, I did a couple months ago with some friends of mine. And um, it, it started off with... Uh, there was some, uh, or actually, it was based off of the uh, the module, the Caves of Chaos, and I had crafted my own story based off of the module Caves of Chaos. And so, um, what it is is that it's a it's a castle, and then there are caves outside. And the caves, there are monsters, and you go and kill the monsters. The castle is the HQ for the players, where they get resupplied and all that stuff. It's pretty basic. Um, but that's what D&D was at the time when it came out. And uh, it's it's a lot of fun. It's just classic uh, slash and bash, all that stuff. Um, but when I added my story, I wanted to kind of like add some depth to the characters and the monsters and reasoning of why uh, stuff was going on and all that such. So um, a few of the questions like I asked myself is like, okay, what is what is the castle being there? What What is it for? Well, I... Um, kind of answered my immediate answer was like okay well it's to stop the tide of monsters from coming in the the it's uh, to stop the the caves of chaos to overwhelm the land and i was like okay what does the land look like now this is kind of like a frontier of uh what um uh, civilization versus monsters uh the savage monsters um kind of is so like what does that look like well and then i started uh you know asking myself some questions of world building well this castle is part of a kingdom uh it's the frontier um it is between two mountains and is like literally the entrance to the kingdom where beyond the wall 
basically is um, is uh, savage monsters that reside free and all that stuff uh, and all that baloney. So, I mean, it, it, it started uh, developing some questions and uh, started developing some answers uh, of the world building. So uh, this castle was basically like the Great Wall of China um, in my mind, where it was it is the frontier. It is the wall um, um, against all the evil that could be. Uh, flowing into the kingdom and it stops them that's why they always need adventurers and soldiers and reinforcements and all that stuff to kind of bar in this uh in this castle and um the next question i could ask myself is like okay well there is like a tavern there is there is people there are farmers there need to be like farmers to a castle because you know otherwise people can't get fed and people don't like that so um you need to i started asking myself some questions it was like okay to people that live in this castle, live in this environment, knowing that there's danger beyond the wall, what does that look like? So, I again, I took a lot of inspiration from movies and uh, um, fantasy books and novels and just my own imagination to just kind of craft exactly what variety of personalities could be there to kind of like liven and uh, spicing up some interactions with NPCs that players could have. So, um yeah, those are just like those are beginning questions that I started to ask myself. And then it kind of like stretches out into uh, like going back to the castle. Um, that was just the general populace. So the NPCs, how they behave and all that stuff. But also you could ask yourself the question of like, OK, how do the guards feel? Um, as well at the same time are they constantly stressed because uh, like is the castle constantly attacked by the monsters or is it kind of like uh, few and far between um, type of attacks but they're very big is that uh, so like I mean are the guards always on edge um, are they agitated always uh, typically because they're stressed because there's always so many raids that go on uh, or are they um, or they are, are they just more disciplined and just always at the ready? Are they vigilant and all that such? So like, again, asking yourself some questions of like how frequent are attacks from the monsters to the castle um, could like uh, help you kind of craft the NPCs and craft their mentality and personality when it comes to interacting with the players. Um, because uh, a guard with a short temper is gonna is gonna arrest a lot more players than uh, a guard that is much more relaxed or something like that. So um, it's just something to keep in mind as well to kind of liven up the game. Um, so other now moving on to the monster side, um, of like a way to kind of open up perspective is like, um, for example, my first quest uh, was that. Um, the players entered the castle, uh, they did some interactions, and then they were able to get uh, pulled in by a guard and the captain, and they needed to go and clear out a uh, bunch of lizard folk that have started raiding caravans and all that such on the roads. Um, so it immediately started asking some questions already. It's like, okay, the lizard folk are, um, where do they live? What is their what is their housing situation look like? Now, I took a lot of inspiration from the Monster Manual and the fifth edition Monster Manual of Lizard Folk. They're a neutral standing creature, so they're typically they're tribal based. Um, they're very focused on their own survival, and they're not really worshiping any real evil gods or anything like that. They're not going out and you know being they're not goblins. They're lizard folk. They're they're just neutral tribal beings trying to work for their own survival. So um, it immediately started asking him some questions where it's like, okay, so why why are they attacking caravans? Why are they doing this? Um, and so I, I developed that uh, 
the monsters um, in the Caves of Chaos have like started to like grow in numbers and have needed more resources. So they started uh, picking away at the lizard folk. The lizard folk in uh, kind of um, retaliation had to like move away from their next uh, from their previous area and sacrifice a cave to the Caves of Chaos so that more goblins or whatever creatures could move in. Uh, they had to move somewhere else and they also needed to uh, and they didn't have enough food for their tribe so they had to start stealing and uh, raiding the caravans uh, that the uh, castle would need. So that like I like that's what I developed uh, and got to eventually after asking the first simple question of okay, why are they doing this? Why are they attacking the caravans? And then the next thing I could start asking is like, okay, what does the environment look like? They're currently living in a swamp. So what are the creatures and what are the, the hazards and what are the monsters that are going to be in a swamp for the most part to kind of like shape and uh, again, spicing up the experience, make it feel really real that they're in a swamp, trudging through the mud and just all that such as well. Um, so yeah, the, like, again, it all starts from basic questions. And then when you start to answer some of those questions, that's, that's world building. That's you taking baby steps into, into world building. Like I had, uh, I had simply had a castle and caves from the caves of chaos. And I started to craft my own world where it was, uh, this kingdom is, uh, cut off from the rest of the world but um they they use this castle as the frontal frontier against the savage lands which are where monsters reside civilization is uh um kind of here in its only area with a few kingdoms uh littered around but that's kind of it so next thing that we're going to do is that we're going to get into dungeon of the week so Dungeon of the Week is basically a uh, dungeon that is sent in to me or else chosen by me if nothing was sent in uh, of just a dungeon that I want to kind of like describe and highlight some of its uh, like attributes and just its its good qualities as well. So um, I, I decided to do some looking around and kind of with some inspiration and the talk of like my session that I did a couple months ago uh, with Caves of Chaos, I decided to pick Cave K from Dungeon of the Week. And I'll be posting this up on Facebook, Instagram, all that stuff. So you guys will be able to check this out if you are listening in and kind of want to check it out while I'm kind of describing it. So um, yeah, no, Cave K is just one of probably my, my favorite caves to kind of develop and play in because it really sets the tone of what the 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 true hub of evil the true hub of chaos and evil that the caves kind of represent um before it's all like orcs and goblins and stuff like that you see the savagery that is in it but in cave k you actually witness the true utter evil that is um re responsible for all the the caves of chaos being there for um, so yeah, like you immediately walk in and there's an immediate echo of your footsteps. Like even if you try to sneak, there's still an echo, which will attract zombies and such. And that already is like, like, uh, really, really concerning for a bunch of characters. Like, uh, back in second edition, when I played with those rules, that was a big deal because, uh, in second edition, once you hit zero, you were dead, like dead, dead. Um, so like, the element of surprise was a really big advantage of just being able to walk inside the cave and having the echo there and zombies always kind of like being able to hear it and be attracted to it was always um, – it's always a big concern for the players. Like the ble – uh, the blood, there's blood red and uh, black rock stone kind of like ornating the halls around it and all that such and it just kind of, you, kind of gives you a very creepy feel. It's a very big cave which allows um, – 
um, uh, for you to kind of experiment when it comes to uh, zombie hordes. If you're dealing with a higher level um, character cast as well, like I mean the 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 uh, the cave is like by tw 20 feet wide basically so it gives you a lot of like plain space available to actually have some like interesting combats go on um yeah so it's kind of like built like a chapel um you can kind of see on the on the southern side the southwestern side you can see that uh, there is um uh, collapsed part of the cave now that part has always been a big favorite of mine because that allows you to kind of uh, um have a different area and uh your own creativity can kind of come from that uh area because typically uh the module as it as it says it's not really used for anything but you can use it to whatever you want maybe the characters um after clearing the cave like bring over a bunch of soldiers from the castle and help clear it out and then they go and investigate what's deep down uh, uh, further into that cave so that could like lead to its own other new quest or different campaign entirely so that was always uh, really interesting um of course if you go up northern uh northern side and then head to the northeast there's a there's a different um kind of cave system that already like leads you to a jail cell with a medusa in it which is absolutely fantastic um of course like I, that already like adds so much different layers to the uh to the cave itself and the uh the dynamic that's in there um, along with the, the jail cell and, of course, the storage room, uh, typical things. Uh, the graveyard with a white, um, that's always hor horrifying uh, for the most part, especially if you're dealing with lower-level characters. Um, but, yeah, I, I think my favorite room, my favorite room of all time is probably um, the room that you find if you had west and then south. So it's this big room, it's this big chapel that's kind of decorated with uh, tapestries and of course um, lots of other uh, details for the most part. But mainly one of its key features is that uh, there are golden like golden goblets and pitchers and cups and all that stuff and bowls that are kind of like hewn with a red inside them and stained brown with blood. Um, if the, they look incredibly valuable and if characters pick them up, then they start to go a little crazy and want to become one of the cultists here so that you can start inspiring them to have visions. You can do basically anything you want to describe the way that you're taking over your character and that these relics are relics of pure, utter evil. Um, so there's that that can always get like characters who are greedy, kind of like on edge for the most part, have like an interesting twist to it. Um, but at the same time, if you head up more north, there's like a lethal trap, which is only good encounters come from this. So basically, this is where the the evil priest kind of um, runs into players for the first time. Um, in my campaign that I ran, uh, the the evil priest was actually the 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 ultimate villain of the campaign, which uh, again was just inspired by this one room, just how thought out it was is for the most part. So characters enter, and as soon as they enter. Uh, magic trigger uh, activates a, a gong to be sound along with candles to be lit with a distracting distracting um, um, color color spell for the most part and it kind of distracts players for the first little bit and charms them so uh, already you have a charm that goes on and second you have a big gong that sounds that actually opens up so that 20 skeletons and 20 zombies kind of go and surround the players for the most part from either end from doors that are behind curtains that are not initially seen. So um, already, it's a horrible situation. 
a horrible, horrible situation. Not only is it that bad, it gets worse. That the evil priest and a couple of his, of his zombie guards come out, and now already there is a basically a 43 versus a party of four or five. The, the, not, the odds are definitely not in their favor when it comes to that. And so it really like demands a lot of um, care. That, uh, that, that room demands a lot of care, but at the same time, it's so interesting and it's demanding to be so memorable when you do an encounter like that. So that is why I, I, I decided to kind of pick out uh, Cave K for uh, Dungeon of the Week for the most part because it was just so nice. So yeah, I guess that uh, basically concludes this podcast. I'd just like to express my thanks to you guys for listening in. Uh, this is my first podcast ever, so I've been pretty nervous for it the whole run, but uh, I really appreciate you guys uh, listening in to the end. Um, I'm looking forward to kind of uh, improving and just kind of discussing more about this. This is a topic that I've uh, like uh, really loved discussing. Dungeons & Dragons is a great way for uh, creativity to kind of bleed out into um, just everybody's lives and I, I like to it's something that I really like to discuss uh, for future episodes I plan on bringing some people in so of course you'll hear other opinions and uh, other questions and other stuff related uh, towards D&D so you won't just get my perspective alone we'll, we'll bring in lots of other people but uh, yeah if you got any questions comments concerns or co- some constructive criticism uh, you can email us at ajusttheway at gmail.com but uh, also be sure to like and uh, follow our pages on Instagram or Facebook at a just the way so yeah i'd just like to thank you guys once again for uh listening in to ain't that just the way DD podcast um <laughs> yeah i'll have to work on that for next time but um yeah i hope you guys have a good one